The House and the Senate are both in recess and will not return until July 20th. That's a week from Monday. Leaving the World Health Organization, on Tuesday evening of last week, the U.S. government informed the World Health Organization that the U.S. will withdraw from the WHO next July, ending its 72-year membership in the international organization. Presumptive Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden announced that if he wins the presidency in November, he will rescind that order and the U.S. will remain a member of the World Health Organization. So we have a nice, clear, bright line distinction between the two on that issue. Now to coronavirus response, part 17. When Congress returns next week, the two houses will have exactly 11 days to pass the next coronavirus response bill before, response bill before they break for the August recess. And the general consensus in Washington is that both houses will work to pass a bill before heading out for that August recess. The question is, What's going to be in it? And that's where there are a wide variety of opinions. House Democrats already passed their version of the next coronavirus response bill. It costed out at more than $3 trillion and includes a whole bunch of liberal wish list items. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell continues to insist that the bill should cost no more than $1 trillion. And he likewise insists that the bill must contain liability protection to avoid a tsunami of lawsuits from greedy trial lawyers. The White House, meanwhile, has given mixed signals. Acting OMB Director Russ Vogt and Chief Economic Advisor Larry Kudlow have both said the White House would side with McConnell and support no more than a trillion dollars in new spending. Chief Trade Advisor Peter Navarro, on the other hand, has been quoted saying the White House would support a $2 trillion spending package. One of the major items that will be a subject of negotiation is the $1 trillion for state and local government funding that's contained in the House Democrats bill. That's money to bail out state and local governments that have seen massive revenue loss as the economy has shut down. The problem is House Democrats have included hundreds of billions of dollars in that pot of money that has nothing to do with revenues lost from the pandemic. Instead, those hundreds of billions of dollars are meant to bail out blue states that made reckless fiscal decisions long before the coronavirus ever escaped China and hopped on a boat or airplane to the United States. And Republicans know that and just do not want to bail out those reckless decisions. Now to reopening schools. A second major item that, that could become a flashpoint in negotiations over the next coronavirus response bill is the question of reopening schools and just how much federal money is going to be spent to do it. Last Tuesday at the White House, Jenny Beth took part in a public discussion with the president and vice president and the first and second lady on the topic of reopening the schools. I will let her tell you about that in more detail and answer any questions you might have. But suffice it to say that a clip of her five minute and 50 second statement directly to the president was posted to Facebook and as of an hour ago had accumulated 12.1 million views. The president and vice president have made clear their determination to reopen the schools in the fall. By week's end, the president and education secretary, Betsy DeVos, had raised the subject of cutting off federal education funding to schools that do not reopen physically in the fall. Democrats and the media predictably went nuts. Even some Republicans have difficulty standing up to the teachers' unions. And that's where it's going to get ugly, because some of the teachers' unions are making demands that have nothing at all to do with the coronavirus. For instance, United Teachers Los Angeles, a 35,000-member teachers' union in the Los Angeles Unified School District, released a policy paper last week that included provisions it says will be necessary before schools can reopen. Among them, quote, 
sequestering students in small groups throughout the school day, providing students with masks and other forms of protective equipment, and redesigning school layouts in order to facilitate social distancing, unquote, according to Just the News. But wait, there's more. In addition, the teachers' union needs to see what it calls local support in the form of defunding the local police and closing charter schools and, quote, the implementation of a federal Medicare for All program, several new state-level taxes on wealthy people, and a federal bailout of the school district, unquote, says the teachers' union, quote, as it stands, the only people guaranteed to benefit from the premature physical reopening of schools amidst a rapidly accelerating pandemic are billionaires and the politicians they've purchased, end quote. The House Democrats' $3 trillion wish list coronavirus response bill included $90 billion for schools. Senate Democrats introduced their own school funding bill that, that set the cost at $175 billion. No one knows what the final tally will be, but I'm betting it'll be somewhere in that neighborhood, maybe even higher. We'll find out in the next few days. Now to the Flynn follow-up, continued. On Thursday, U.S. District Judge Emmett G. Sullivan, the federal judge overseeing the trial of former Trump National Security Advisor General Michael Flynn, asked the full U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit to review his case. You will recall that just a few weeks ago, on June 24th to be precise, a three-judge panel of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit ruled that Judge Sullivan should bring the case to a close and that Sullivan was wrong to have appointed a retired federal judge to argue against the Department of Justice's decision to drop the case. Now we move on to the Roger Stone sentence commutation. On Friday evening, President Trump commuted to the prison sentence of his longtime advisor, Roger Stone. The move prevented Stone from having to serve a single day of his 40-month sentence. Stone had been convicted of seven felony offenses related to testimony he gave Congress about the Russia collusion investigation. Many believe Stone was railroaded by a jury whose foreman, a liberal Democrat activist who had previously run for Congress, should have revealed more about herself during her voir dire before, hearing before the trial. By commuting Stone's sentence rather than pardoning Stone, President Trump allows Stone to continue his legal appeal of his conviction. And now to the election update that Jenny Beth mentioned. If the public polls are anywhere near accurate, if the election were held today, Democrats would sweep into the White House, recapture the Senate, and maintain control of the House of Representatives. If the public polls are anywhere near accurate, says Amy Walter of the Cook Political Report, we aren't just looking at a blue wave, we're looking at a Democratic tsunami. If the public polls are anywhere near accurate, we may as well all start planning right now how best to deal with Democrats in control of Washington beginning in January. But, 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 that's a big if. Because if the public polls were accurate, we'd be talking about President Hillary Clinton running her campaign for re-election against a Republican not named Trump. Trump campaign communications director Tim Murtaugh brushes off the public polls, saying they're undersampling Republicans. He insists that the polls are wrong because the survey samples typically have just 25 or 26% of the sample identifying themselves as Republicans, and that's true. But there's a slight hitch with his analysis. His premise is that more than a quarter of the electorate is Republican, and therefore any poll that shows just 25 or 26% of its sample as Republican is wrong. 
But what if that's what the pollsters get when they survey people? What if Murtaugh is wrong in his assumption that more than a quarter of the electorate is Republican? What if the fevered dreams of the left have come true, that Donald Trump is such a polarizing figure that he has, in fact, driven many Republicans away? And they simply no longer wish to identify themselves as members of his political party. And 25 or 25 or 26 percent Republican is actually an accurate sample that properly represents the body politic as a whole. Granted, Tim, Tim Murtaugh is not the only political person who thinks the pollsters are undersampling Republicans. Alyssa Slotkin, a freshman Democrat congresswoman from Michigan, also thinks the pollsters are undersampling Republican voters. She was elected in 2018 in a district that Trump had won in 2016 by seven points, no less. And she's running in her first re-election campaign. She's someone who has more than a passing interest in this question, because it will likely determine whether her career in Congress ends after one term or not. Quote, listen, if anyone tells me they can accurately predict what major events are coming in the remainder of 2020, I'll give them a thousand dollars. I mean, this has been the year of black swans, unquote. She told The Hill, quote, I don't for one minute think this presidential race is safe in anyone's column. I've been literally begging people to ignore those polls. They are a snapshot in time. And if 2020 has taught us anything, it's that we have no idea what's coming next, unquote. That's certainly true. We have just over 110 days before the election. 110 days ago, was the beginning of April. The country had been shut down for about three weeks at that point. Think about how much has changed since then. We've got that much time left before the election. So she's right. There's plenty of time for things to turn around. Now, there are two interesting things buried deep in the public polls, things that indicate that not all is lost. First, Trump supporters are about 10 to 12 points more excited about voting than our Biden supporters. That voter intensity could be the difference on election day. Second, by an even larger margin, about 20%, Trump supporters say their vote is a show of support for their candidate rather than a vote against the other guy. That is, about 70% of Trump supporters say they're voting for Trump, while only 50% of Biden supporters say that. That, too, is an indicator of voter intensity, and that's a good sign for the president. All right, so... There are your caveats. Take everything I say with a pillar of salt because it's all based on polls that may or may not be accurate. But they're all we've got to go on because the Trump campaign, which says it has its own polls that show things quite differently, isn't releasing its own internal polls. So based on the public polls, our side is trailing. We're trailing in the presidential race. Right now, President Trump is trailing in virtually every single battleground state. And in a lot of states he won in 2016, by rather large margins. He's trailing in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. He's trailing in North Carolina, Arizona, and Florida. He's leading in Texas by a point in a brand new CBS News poll that just came out today. He's not the only one trailing. In a lot of the presidential battleground states, we also have Senate races going on. Democrats are defending just 12 Senate seats in this cycle. I consider just three of those 12 seats even close to being in play. In Alabama, <coughs> Incumbent Democrat Doug Jones is likely going to lose to whomever the Republicans nominate, whether it's former Senator Jeff Sessions or former Auburn football coach Tommy Tuberville. That'll be decided on Tuesday in a primary runoff between the two.
Two other Democrat-held seats are potentially in play. Michigan, where incumbent Gary Peters is being challenged by John James, the 2018 Republican candidate for the Senate. James is trailing Peters in the most recent polls in that race, but Peters is still polling under 45%, so he's in trouble. The final seat where Democrats might be in trouble is New Hampshire, where Gene Shaheen is running for re-election. Granted, state Republicans have not yet selected their nominee. That primary won't be held until September 8th. Both major Republican contenders are former military men. Shaheen has won the Senate seat twice, in 2008 and 2014, but she's never won it with more than 52% of the vote. And the Trump campaign only lost New Hampshire by about 3,500 votes in 2016, so they're going to be playing heavily there. On the Republican side, it's all defense all the time. There are 23 Republican seats up for re-election, and events have conspired to move against the Republicans since the start of the year. Back in January, I would have bet good money that Mitch McConnell was going to be re-elected Senate Majority Leader in January of 2021 because the Republicans would still be in control of the Senate. Today, that's a bad bet. Of the 23 seats the Republicans are defending, at least nine of them are in serious danger of flipping. Martha McSally in Arizona, Cory Gardner in Colorado, Susan Collins in Maine, Steve Daines in Montana and Tom Tillis of North Carolina are all in toss-up races right now. David Perdue in Georgia, Kelly Loeffler in Georgia, Joni Ernst in Iowa, and the open Pat Roberts seat in Kansas are all considered lean Republican. Now, based on my thinking about the presidential race, I think those lean Republican seats, that is the two Georgia seats, the Iowa seat and the Kansas seat, they're all relatively safe for now. That is, there may be competitive races going on now more than 100 days out, but as the election draws nearer, I think it's likely those states are going to revert to their natural state of play and those seats will be safe. I would say the same thing about Montana, because Montana is reliably red at the presidential level, but there's a hitch. Only one Republican senator running for re-election has ever won re-election in Montana. And the Democratic candidate is the current governor of the state, Steve Bullock. So that seat is going to stay in the toss-up column all the way to Election Day. I think Cory Gardner is going to have a very difficult time getting reelected in Colorado. He's running against a popular former governor, John Hickenlooper, and the state is likely to go blue in the presidential race as it has in the last three cycles. I think Martha McSally is going to have a difficult time getting reelected in Arizona. She's never won a statewide race there, and she's running against a very popular astronaut who's married to the very popular former congresswoman, Gabby Giffords. If McSally is going to pull it off, it'll be because Trump carries the state and his voters push her over the line. I think Susan Collins is in the fight of her life. Maine is a tough state for any Republican, and the presidential race will not be a benefit to her running statewide. I think Tom Tillis and Joni Ernst are going to come back again because of the presidential race. Trump should carry both states, and that'll be helpful to both of them. Right now, they're not looking good in the polls. They're both polling at under 45%, but I think the presidential race will help both of them. And we'll talk about House races next week. That's our election update and our Washington report for this week.